0: the responsibility to protect.
1: Atrocity prevention.
0: Worth, kill.
1: All societies are potentially vulnerable. Atrocity
0: crimes, timely and appropriate actions.
1: Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline streitfeld Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Hurya Mossadegh, an Afghan and women human rights defender, a journalist and director of Conflict Analysis Network. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much, Eklene, for inviting me.
1: Uh, Hurya, it's been one year since the Taliban militarily took over Afghanistan. Could you set the stage for our listeners? What happened last August and and what has been the general situation in the years since?
0: I can't really believe that you know it is just the anniversary of Taliban retaking of Afghanistan, uh, and it has been like one year. Like, of course, Taliban did not take over Afghanistan militarily, but they took it part of a compromise, and agreement made between the U.S. and our uh, president and his allies. So this has been unfortunately the deal uh, we are. Uh, Afghanistan was handed over uh, to the Taliban rather than Taliban being able to uh, take it uh, militarily. And the issue with, like in the past one year, I think this has been the most difficult one year, uh, you know, since I have started my activism. Of course, this is the second time that Taliban have taken over Afghanistan. But I think this time it affected us so much and it has affected us at so many levels uh from personal to professional to you know uh, uh, all sorts of uh, levels and uh, this has been because you know in the past one year we all have invested so much in afghanistan we all have paid uh, such a high price with our personal life with 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 you know with our blood, and then suddenly we saw everything just given and handed over to the Taliban. So in the past one year, uh, it has been extremely difficult uh, for all of us, you know, like it has been, uh, like every day we wake up with the reports of Taliban, you know, killed someone, you know, executed someone, taken women to prison, disappearances uh, you know like uh, and so many other atrocities and human rights violations that is happening all over the place like women are deprived of their very basic fundamental rights such as access to work, access to education and uh, unfortunately this has uh, become a daily occurrence uh, for the past one year like every day we wake up like there is no day goes by that we do not receive a report that whether taliban have summarily executed someone or some people have disappeared or some people were uh, you know uh, abducted and uh, taken into detention uh, or you know like women are being killed or uh, disappeared or uh, you know uh, being beaten up and their uh, human rights have been violated uh, on a daily basis. And Unfortunately, this has been uh, our uh, our one year since Taliban took
1: over. The situation you've just described in terms of um, restrictions on women's rights and, and attacks um, against civilians, um, I know that a lot of this has particularly targeted civil society actors, including women's rights activists, human rights defenders, as well as reporters. How do you think this has affected human rights monitoring and reporting that comes from within Afghanistan?
0: Uh, it did affect uh, significantly. First of all, we are dealing with a uh, de facto authority that they do not abiding with any form of law or legal framework. Simply in Afghanistan, we have an uh, absence of a legal framework, and according to the Taliban, they are implementing Sharia, but then the interpretation of Sharia is uh, different from person to person, from village to village, from district to district. And uh, with with that, you know, like the other problem that we are facing uh, for the past one year, with all the atrocities and human rights violations that are happening, there is zero accountability because Taliban who were once, you know, killing, assassinating, attacking human rights defenders, journalists and, and, and you know, uh, civil society activists, they, they are right now in charge of the government, you know. Who do we go and complain to? In the past one year, like tens of human rights defenders and civil society activists were arrested, disappeared, abducted, killed. And and this has been the same situation with journalists. Freedom of expression, which was one of our greatest uh, achievements post-2001 in Afghanistan, uh, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Journalists are simply being... uh, you know, um, detained and tortured for inviting in their talk show a Taliban critic. People who are daring to criticize Taliban's policy or women who are protesting on the streets or men who are objecting to what is happening in the country, they all face severe punishment by the uh, Taliban. And those punishment is from you know, uh, abduction, disappearances, detention, an unlawful detention without uh, due diligence, and disappearances to also, you know, uh, assassination. You know, some of the people are getting killed by unidentified gunmen, and no one knows who they are, and, and you have no way of holding, uh, you know... Uh, the perpetrators to account, and this simply because the legal framework and the protection mechanism that we had before, it doesn't exist anymore. Like, simply, we are just left to fend for ourselves. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to survive, we would. And this has been also one of the main reasons that so many human rights activists and journalists, they had to flee the country because after uh, they are being uh, attacked, threatened, and some of them that were detained, uh, they had to sign a, a document and, uh, you know, guarantee the Taliban that they will not speak against the Taliban. And if they speak, then their family can face a consequences. So uh, th- th- this has been our, our situation for the past one year. Like, the freedom of expression is at as its lowest level uh, since the uh, Taliban took over, and if you compare it with uh, what was happening before that, uh, women rights, human rights, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, and uh, political, social, and economic rights, everything is uh, you know it, 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 whether it doesn't exist or it's at, at the at the lowest level.
1: You just mentioned specifically women's rights, and I know that that that's one of the things that had significantly changed in the time period when the Taliban um, didn't have leadership. But now that they're back in power, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has characterized the steps they've taken as institutionalized systematic oppression of women. Can you describe some of the the recent restrictions they've placed on women in particular and and the impact that has had on people?
0: Well, yeah, like uh, in the past few months, uh, Taliban not only, uh, you know, uh, they refused to open schools for the girls and they refused to allow women to uh, go back to their offices and continue to their work. They also imposed uh, restrictions on movement. So women are not allowed to leave their home without being accompanied by a male chaperone. Or uh, women are not allowed to travel certain uh, distance without a male company, and also head to toe uh, covering in burqa or, or you know in uh, other forms of you know uh, like it's called hijab, by the Taliban have been imposed on uh, women. Uh, also, most recently, uh, Taliban announced that women who are part of the government, part of the civil servants, they should introduce a male relative to come and uh, replace them uh, in the government. So, uh, you know, with all that, like, what it really reminds us, like, back in 1990s, when Taliban were in charge of the uh, government in Afghanistan, we knew that they are the only gender apartheid regime in the world. We knew that they are the most anti-woman group in the world. And and we kept warning. We kept warning the US, we kept warning the West, we kept warning the United Nations, but unfortunately no one believed us. And, and, and they always spoke to us about like-minded Taliban. Taliban have changed and Taliban are not the same as they were in 1990s. And we kept telling them, yes, we know that they are not the same Taliban as they were in the 1990s because they became more vicious, they became more violent, and they also learned how to play diplomacy. They learned a lot how to how to trick and how to lie, how, how to lie bluntly and not being held to account. But I, I believe that the international community, they wanted to believe what... Taliban are telling them. They wanted to not believe us and they didn't want to listen to us because they wanted Taliban to return. They wanted Taliban to be part of the, you know, whatever so-called peace solution they wanted. This is what, what, what they were really doing. So, and one year after, I think many of the Western diplomats or UN officials As an Afghan woman, I think, honestly, they're just shedding crocodile tears. This is, you know, like, they knew what what, what will come with the Taliban. They knew how Taliban will be and how Taliban are looking like. But they they just wanted to sell this idea of like-minded Taliban, or Taliban have changed and this and that to their own people and also to their own governments while, you know, we all knew what will come with it. So, this has been the situation. Like, this is not just about women's rights and girls' rights to education, to um, employment, and to political participation. But then you see at the dis- systematic discrimination against other ethnic groups across Afghanistan, the persecution of religious minorities, the persecution of other ethnic groups in Afghanistan. Like, you have a cabinet of all male from one ethnic group. You know, like, women and people from other ethnic groups are, are totally being sidelined. And the worst is that, you know, like, right now, the atrocities that are happening in Panchir, in Andarop, in Daikundi, in Balkh province, it is not getting highlighted in international media. And if you look at the level of atrocities that you're committing in these places, and then if you look at the level of atrocities they're also committing in Pashtun-dominated area, particularly against former members of the Afghan National Security Forces, former members of the uh, Afghan government, against women, against girls, and, and they're not being deported simply because people are so uh, scared to report and and unfortunately you, you barely hear that in in the international or local media, and people who dare to report they face
1: severe consequences for that. Thank you for that um i think you you've touched on this a bit, but how have threats to to minority groups? Um, such as the Hazara, for example, changed since the, the Taliban took over? Have have targeted attacks against them escalated? I know that the, the persecution has escalated, but what other threats and atrocities are they facing?
0: Well, uh, it is not just Hazaras, but also Hindus. Unfortunately, the last members of the Hindu community, we left Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago because Afghanistan turned into a hell for them. You know, they have been attacked in their places of worship. They have been attacked in, in, in the streets. They have been attacked, and, and their properties have been confiscated. And they experienced so much atrocities. And and we also know the background that back in 1990s, how Taliban treated Hazaras and, and uh, Hindus. And, and this has been exactly the same situation now. Since Taliban took over, particularly at the beginning of 2022, we have seen an, a spike of attacks against Hazaras. Some of those attacks were blamed on ISIS, uh, particularly attacks that happened on the places of education, on the places of uh, worship and uh, you know places like that. But then we also see that how Taliban are, forcing Hazaras to leave their areas because they are confiscating their lands. Like there is an enforced displacement is happening in uh, Hazara areas and Taliban are retaking their lands, their properties. Uh, we know that the atrocities including, uh, you know, uh, mass killings are happening in certain parts of Afghanistan, where uh, it is uh, Hazara-dominated areas, such as in Daikundi and uh, in Balkh districts, and then What we also see that, you know, the level of restrictions and and, uh, uh, I would say like uh, the level of restrictions and uh, limitation that you're imposing on the people in Hazara dominated area is, is much, much higher. And this is also similar to the situation in Panjshir and in uh, Andarab and in certain other parts of uh, Afghanistan. So, uh, like, access to education, access to health, access to many other services in those areas is absolutely being uh, uh, to non-existence. And even when it comes to the aid delivery, you know, for the humanitarian aid, you would barely see that Taliban would distribute any humanitarian aid in conflict-affected areas where it is dominantly Hazaras or, uh, you know, pine or people from Andorop or other places. So, uh, like, it is not just, you know, the discrimination in sense of the, you know, political participation, even access to services, access to, you know, humanitarian aid. and uh, Access to justice it has been has been absolutely to non existence. Like just a few days ago, I had a report that in one of the Taliban intelligence uh, detention center, 480 people are detained. From 480 people, over 400 of them are from Peshawar, and you know something like just above. 70 people, they are from, again, from Andarab and from Khost and Fring uh, districts of Baghlan, where the resistance against Taliban is happening. And many of these people, they have nothing to do with resistance. And the reason that they are being arrested, the reason that they are being killed, the reason that they are being, uh, you know, tortured, simply because they are belong to that area, not because they have been actively participating in in anti-Taliban armed resistance. Even people who participate in armed resistance, they they, they don't have the chance to get into a detention. They are just killed on the spot.
1: I think that's such an an important observation that, um, that it's not just about resistance. It's not just about those who are seen as a threat to the government. It's it's really, or to the Taliban. Um, it's really a, largely about who you are and where you're from and, and what you believe.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because even if you see, like there wasn't any ant resistance, for example, in, in uh, Daikundi, you know, there wasn't any ant resistance by Hindus, you know, like, and, and I think Hindus are the most peaceful citizens of Afghanistan, you know, but then the atrocities that they face and and the discrimination that they have faced, the level of persecution they have faced, it it is just unimaginable. Like I I can't believe that how someone can turn the situation so unbearable to someone that, you know, the last group of Hindus, they had to leave Afghanistan with their holy book because they all will be killed.
1: I think when when the takeover first happened last year, you know, Afghanistan was the cover of, of newspapers everywhere around the world and um, and the main news story. And for a variety of reasons, both in terms of time and the invasion of Ukraine, it has it has sort of become less of a spotlight issue, um, unfortunately. In addition to to the Hindu highlight that you've just mentioned, you know, are there are there stories of things happening in Afghanistan that you think are not widely reported by the international community, either in the media or or in UN reports, that you think are um, particularly relevant to atrocity risks that should be getting more attention?
0: Definitely, yeah. I think one of the issues that is happening. More and more, uh, since Taliban took over, is we are every day we are receiving so many cases of femicide. You know, so many women are getting killed, and many of them they are being somehow said that a woman, a woman's body was found here and there in the corners of the city. We 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 didn't see such a thing before. You know, like I, I'm not saying that women were not killed, and even on that time, the majority of women who were killed and executed, it was under the Taliban-controlled areas. And now it has increased so much that, you know, like we have so many reports from different parts of the country, you know, from it's Pashtun area, this is Hazar area, this is Tajik area, but then you see that, you know, the body of a young girl the body of a young woman if being recovered and she was shot dead and she's unidentified some of them if they're lucky they will they, they, their identity will be revealed but for the vast majority even we don't know who they are and and what were the circumstances that they were killed this is one of the issues and second the level of violence against women and girls you know because in the past we had Ministry of Women's Affairs, we had Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission who were systematically uh, recording all the cases of violence against women. And also we had uh, family response units within the police and we had like a special attorney office for tackling violence against women. Now all those departments, all those institutions have been dissolved and they don't exist. So the only way for us to hear about cases of violence against women is through social media. And this is only when the case gets to the level, for example, if a woman is killed by her husband, by her brother, by her father, by whoever, or if a woman is, uh, you know, being badly beaten up and she ends up in the hospital and someone in the hospital, maybe a doctor or a nurse, they would just break the news through the social media, uh, so then you know. Other than that, we have, we, we, we hear nothing about that and, and we don't know. And uh, as much as I heard that so many of these women, when they are facing violence, they have nowhere to go. If they go to the Taliban, they are telling them, Yes, your husband, your father, your brother, they are allowed to beat you, they are allowed to treat you like that. Because they are your sole owner, you know they are your sole guardian, and and you cannot do anything against them. And unfortunately, you don't hear much about that in in the international media or even local media.
1: It's that dual pressure of the lack of institutions to turn to, and and just that they're creating that permissive environment and sort of sending the message that that you're allowed to do this against women because uh, you know that that's your role and also we're not going to punish it absolutely you know I think you've you've touched on this a few times the the absence of a legal framework now um, the fact that in in many cases the perpetrators are are the people in a place of of power and you um, you know, I think you very powerfully said earlier in the conversation, who do we complain to? Who do we who do we turn to for these issues? You know, and I I know that um, particularly given how Afghanistan got to the situation it's in now. um you know, the international community doesn't feel like the answer, but but to the extent that someone outside of, of Afghanistan could make a difference, um, what what do you think the international community could do to place put in place more robust protection measures for um, for civilians or even for, you know, human rights defenders and journalists?
0: Well, I think the international community can do several things, you know, like, first of all, what we really expect from the international community to put more pressure on the taliban which unfortunately at the moment we don't see anything we, we see lack of consistency we see mixed messages we see like one is trying to be tougher and the other is extending a red carpet to the taliban so uh, th- these are like the challenges that we are facing at the moment and and i think what could be done You know, first of all, I think the international community should pressure the Taliban. And that pressure needs to come through putting travel ban on senior members of the Taliban. It should be asset freeze of the senior members of the Taliban. And it should be much more tougher reactions towards this group, just by talking and, you know, like, uh, uh, I would say, like condemning or, or, or saying something through Twitter. This is not going to solve our problem. This is not going to help us, you know. And, and the only way that it could change things is when the Taliban are held to account. And and, and that accountability needs to come through, you know, uh, tougher sanctions and, and uh, actions by the international community, including the UN. And second, I think my uh, personal uh, request will be that the international community need to accelerate the process of uh, relocation and resettlement of Afghan human rights defenders and journalists at risk. Uh, Unfortunately, for some of the cases, we have to wait for months and months before even we hear that a visa is being processed or not a lack of financial resources is another issue like we have tens of human rights defenders at risk in afghanistan in pakistan in different parts of the world and they are waiting for resettlement they have nothing really they're living with nothing and when it comes to the financial resources we don't have access to those financial resources to support them so i think it these are like you know if i categorize that it need to be Political support, financial support, resettlement support, and more tougher pressure on the Taliban.
1: Thank you for that. I was I was going to ask um, as a follow up. Uh, you know what different needs populations who are, are still in Afghanistan have versus those who who have been able to to leave the country, but obviously still have um, you know very specific risks to their themselves um, wherever they've relocated to or in terms of thinking about the prospects of you know someday returning um, you know if the circumstances allowed
0: yeah I think you know uh, for uh, definitely I think for the ones that already left the country we have some of the people who are you know in the process of resettlement to uh, certain countries and I think Uh, At least some of the countries, they have been very generous in in offering the support to Afghan human rights defenders and journalists such as Canada, Germany, France, and, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, I think these were among the most generous ones. But then we also have some other countries that have stepped in and supported, but I think, you know, given the situation that is happening right now in the country, it is not enough and it, more needs to be done. So, uh, but at the same time, I think for the ones who are inside the country, we also acknowledge that it will not be possible to, you know, take out all 35 million people. You know, so many people are starving in Afghanistan. So many women, they lost their jobs. They they are the sole breadwinner of, of their families. And, and they have nothing to live with and i think humanitarian assistance particularly aid that is targeted for women aid that is given specifically to women particularly women household heads that that should be also a priority we we, we don't see much as happening like even if you see the aid distribution by by the un or by the taliban themselves it's all men you know like where are the women? Afghanistan is a country that has been in war for the for over forty two years. You know, like we have hundreds of thousands of uh, widows. We have millions of orphans uh, all over the uh, country. So, where we are all these population? How we can ensure that access to aid is, uh, you know, it, it's. It is there for, for, for these uh, population in need, because you, you, especially if women are not allowed to travel without a male chapel, if women are not allowed to leave their homes, and uh, then with all these restrictions, you're simply not only taking the opportunity of a livelihood from them by the Taliban, but also they have taken away the opportunity of accessing aid.
1: Absolutely, this is one of the the most critical things we talk about um, when we think about atrocity prevention and and the gender dimension of atrocity crimes is that it's it's never just thinking about you know women as unique victims of of specific types of crimes, but also the impact in societies like this where um, you know the men may have been killed in conflict or, or are no longer around and and women don't have the rights and access to to resources anymore
0: yeah absolutely absolutely
1: thank you for joining us for this episode of expert voices on atrocity prevention if you'd like more information about the global center's work on r2p mass atrocity prevention or populations at risk of mass atrocities visit our website at global r number 2 p.org and connect with us on twitter and facebook at gcr2b